Well, hey, welcome to the Teams podcast, T-E-A-M-S, Technology, Engineering, the Arts, Mathematics, and Scientists. And today I'm so excited to have one of my most favorite STEM people on the planet. His name is Morgan Fairchild. Did I get that right? Rockwell. Morgan Rockwell. Thank you. And... Today, we're going to talk about the world of non-recreational use mushrooms. Morgan is a highly respected mycologist and president of the San Diego Mycological... Vice president. Vice president, thank you, of the San Diego Mycological Society. But today, we're going to hear a little bit about Morgan and his journey through technology spaces that he's traveled through and where he sees technology right now. And we'll finish off with what the world changing non-recreational use of mushroom technology that's in his brain and in his research lab and really waiting to go public to solve some of the greatest problems that's going on in society right now. Morgan, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty good. Thanks for having me. All right. Well, um, I'm glad to have you here. Uh, at the tail end of the prog- podcast, I definitely want to find out like what a morning in the life of Morgan is because you for shared sure. with me about certain news events that technology is involved in. You're quite knowledgeable about AI. But like when you wake up, what are things that inform you on the day's events? But before that, Morgan, tell us about your journey. Um, I started in San Diego in California here. Um, my parents were uh, military kids, Navy and, and Marines. So I grew up in Chula Vista, California. And I was lucky enough to have... Uh, Mom, Navy, Dad, Marine? Mom's... Uh, Dad was Navy, Dad Marine. Okay, okay, great. And um, Grandpa, Mom's dad was electrical engineer, and he definitely inspired me to learn how to use computers and machines. Uh, He taught me how to solder and deal with batteries and the basics of electrical circuits since I was a little child. I, I could say two or three, I knew how a battery and voltage and watts worked because of him. And, um, you know, he found me as like his his son he had three daughters and so me and my older cousin were the only men in the family as kids mm. so he he adopted us as his actual sons because he had three daughters so he put all his son knowledge into me and my older cousin um, mechanics and electronics so always had a garage available of tools and soldering pens and batteries and working on cars and things like that and my dad he kind of did the same route with me but he let me learn a little bit about nature taught me how to cut wood how to weld how to do plumbing and solder because he was a construction worker for his trade after he got out of the marines Mm -hmm. so from both of those men i got the very early age of how to use a tool which i think is like really vital because i think you know we learn how to play with our toys i played with legos built a lot of modular thinking you know Mm. i could build anything because i have the map legos fantastic totally changed my brain you know 
and erector sets and Lincoln logs. How to build a wooden house, how to build a mechanical bolts and screw device, and then how to stack Legos together. That, those were my roots. And so my grandpa and dad saw that I was good at building things. So my dad gave me a hammer and a screwdriver, <clears throat> and my grandpa gave me a wrench and a soldering pen. And my grandpa had uh, keyboards, Yamaha music equipment, beat machines. He showed me how to take apart circuits because they would break. And he, here, we're going to solder this and fix the keyboard. Wow, that's you know what a blessing. Yeah, that is. and my dad, um, he taught me how to carve. He was a wood carver, so he taught me how to use chisels and hammers. He would do plumbing occasionally. I would help him with solder and plumbing parts sweating copper pipe together with him. He showed me how to hold a torch and solder at like five years old. So trusting a young child with a dangerous tool was, yeah. it was great. You know? Let me jump in here. What was your first tech job? Oh, tech. Um, actually, uh, in first grade, I wasn't paid, but I was the one that set up all the computers in first grade uh, my first grade teacher asked if anyone knew how computers worked, and I actually wired up maybe 10 Apple II computers for the first grade class, plugged them in, turned them on, set them up with the first programs, because the teacher did not know how it worked. <laughs> so I Networking cable? Um, well, mostly, because um, no, we didn't have the internet, but it was individually setting up each Apple II with number crunchers and organ trail so that the kids could use these games. So it's peer-to-peer? -peer. Yes. Oh, okay. And it, um, so I, I could say I was like six, seven years old. So that was nice. Well, how about paid? How about paid tech job? Um, That's a great story, though, by the way. So it started young. Yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, paid um, when I was in middle school, I built a website for Hilltop Middle here in San Diego. Mm. Yeah. And I was a, a computer aide, so I wasn't paid to do that. But the teacher who taught me how to build websites on Adobe Dreamweaver and a, a Macromedia Flash he encouraged me to go downtown to Chula Vista and file for doing business as, start my own business. Oh. So before I ever got paid by anyone, I actually started my web designing company at 15, and I started building HTML-based websites with Flash animated user interfaces for people. Oh. Made a couple thousand dollars in the first year hmm. at 15 selling websites to people. And this was long before MySpace. And what what had years was this? 1998? Um, two, that was 1998, 1999, and mm. then in 2000, 2000 to 2001, I went in high school, ninth grade, and then 9-11 happened. And mm. so um, all of my computer education was pre-millennial, you mm. know? Mm. And, yeah. and we didn't have the iPhone until 2004, Facebook yeah. till 2004, Google wasn't even really there till 2004. Windows 95. All of it. So yeah. there was a massive internet and mobile shift mm -hmm. after 2000, 2001. I was already learning the economy and running my own business, and my dad was running his own business. And when 9-11 happened, the economy did a drastic change. Mm -hmm. So that was my first lesson on maybe I should go work for someone else because oh, running yeah. my own business is a challenge as a kid with no friends and no partners at this time. And the economy did a massive dump at that time. Yeah. So it was a mutual lesson that if I want to be in the tech industry, I might have to go find someone who would hire me instead of doing it by myself. Yeah. Which is the biggest like 
question people need to understand before they go into business for themselves because in my experience, the difference is where's the risk? If you're in business by yourself, the risk is all on you and in a current event, moment notice, you're done. Yeah. Whereas you become a W-2 employee somewhere, somebody else has taken the risk. Yeah. You might not get as much pay or much creativity or much... Freedom. Freedom, yeah. but still you have a paycheck. Security. My <laughs> yeah. dad always liked to say job security. Yeah. Um, he knew I was a computer nerd, and he knew I would be a computer engineer one day, but he always told me, I'm going to teach you how to work on a toilet and change a wax ring. And I go, why? I don't want to do that. He goes, it's job security. Yeah. Everyone on earth has a toilet, and no matter what happens with your goals, if someone needs someone to fix a toilet, you'll be the one guy that knows how to do it. And you always have a job. Well, so it was a good perspective to like humble a very high thinking intellectual computer person to yeah. go, you better learn how to change it. Basic toilet. thing. Yeah. Yeah. Basic. Oh, yeah. They'll never be techno technically replaced. I guess yeah. I so I, I use that as a spectrum of tool and technology. Like it's, I, I can go on a very high end on building neural networks and doing biological computers and artificial intelligence, self-driving cars all the way down to metric and standard measurements of nuts and bolts on a toilet. Yeah. And, and the basics of that to me, it's all the same stuff. It's uh, engineering and, and building has no like class. A, a toilet to me is no different than artificial intelligence. You should know how they work. Same with a yeah, car engine yeah, or a good. cell phone, you know? Well, I can tell you in all practical sense, uh, dating a young lady and she has a problem in her condo related to plumbing or whatever oh, it's that been, it's is been totally great. cool it's, to be a guy been, yeah and I've fixed a lot of girls bathrooms <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. you know what i mean far out but it's also it, it it's a self-esteem thing i i i'm an entrepreneur i've been by myself as a programmer or a technology person i've been self-employed most of my life but also i don't really want to depend on another person mostly a man to fix my home to fix things yeah i, I feel it's it strengthens the ego and the character a little bit to know i can do most of that stuff by well it myself. also saves you a ton of money yeah yeah, there's a there's a meme on the internet like, oh, how did you learn how to, you're a plumber and electrician and this? How did you, did you go to school for this? Like, no, I grew up poor. I would have yeah. died, <laughs> you know? Uh, I had yeah. to learn this. So. Or even now, oh, 10-minute uh, videos on YouTube, boom. Yeah. I know how to check the fluid in my transmission, I, you know, whatever. I, I use thing. YouTube University to fix a lot of things in cars. Oh, yeah. There's Absolutely. always someone else that's dealt with the problem. And I think for technology and learning, there's constant things. Like, we have this new state of AI and and GPT and all this stuff. I, I learned so much from YouTube and TikTok, just yeah. kids putting stuff out every day that they're learning. So It's a great time in history to live. Yes. Yeah. I say Google and YouTube and you can learn anything you want in 10 minutes. Uh, but anyway, so I understand you worked in the government, you had some time in Bitcoin. What other jobs highlight before we get to mushroom technology? Um, yeah, I, in you know, 2003, 4, 5, I um, focused on masonry and doing construction, and it was a good paying job. Um, and I was very motivated to get a full-time computer job at the time. So started studying different programming languages and actually started studying economic things um, like Forex, foreign trading exchanges, because I wanted to be involved in building digital money or digital payment services like PayPal was really big. And I thought maybe I get a job at PayPal, you know, mm. 
And um, in 2008, I was in the mix with the Occupy Wall Street folks, the anonymous hacker people, and I was learning a lot about programming and dedicated denial of service and all of the, the cyber warfare-like things that were coming to the public view because of that. Mm -hmm and how there was angst with the financial system and how hackers were doing protests with groups of people in front of banks. And that led me to be put on the email list for the Bitcoin white paper before the code was released. And so I was one of the first couple dozen people to read the white paper of the idea of Bitcoin. Mm. And at the time I was learning how to do internet of things devices, how to wire machines to machines. And so a couple months of... What year is this again? 2008. 2008. Right when okay. Obama became president. Yeah. And then um, the end of 2008, the election happens. And then about April 2009, Bitcoin's code is released on the internet. Mm. At that time, I was heavily working on Internet of Things. And I was doing internship at Google to work on artificial intelligence systems. Uh, what what now is the basis of the the at home Google speaker that you speak to the, mm -hmm. the version of Alexa that Google has yeah. I was working on that in 2009 oh. beta testing it so I learned a little bit about AI learned a little bit about digital currency and then when Bitcoin gets released I decided to become a full-time programmer because I thought it was a revolutionary change to not just like money but computer science mm. and I thought it was going to be the next level of the internet and I wanted to be involved. I was too young to work on TCP IP or the World Wide Web. They came out when I was a child. Yeah. But Bitcoin to me was the upgrade of the internet. So I, I heavily focused and put my full time on it. Yeah. And I spent now 14 years almost working full time in Bitcoin. Um, did a lot of consulting and built a lot of protocols. Built the first Bitcoin ATM at my shop in my garage. And then me and my partner created something called BitCongress, which was the first voting protocol built on a blockchain, which allowed anyone in the internet to vote on things. And so I, I focused almost a third of my life on that. And that led me to be a consultant and engineer for the U.S. Army oh, as a wow. civilian scientist. Yeah. I helped them figure out how Bitcoin worked. And then I also did that work almost full time in Las Vegas for the casinos where I hoped Bitcoin would be used at the gambling level. Mm. So um, I spent 10 years in Las Vegas advocating for Bitcoin and Nevada had a lot of laws passed around the positive use of Bitcoin in the casino environment. Mm. So I became a lobbyist, a consultant, wow. more than wiring, soldering, programming, actually teaching the government and companies and institutions why they should be using this technology. Great. Um, I want you to make me a promise. Sure. We do a podcast at another time, yeah, and would like to talk about Bitcoin. Yeah, selfishly, I want to understand it, and yeah, I, yeah, yeah. and you're somewhat qualified to explain it to at least to me, right? Yeah, and I think a lot of listeners to our podcast would be interested to hear in your experience contribution with Bitcoin and, yeah. and any other stuff. I have a lot the, of history there. Y yes, and exactly. I know there's a lot of good teachers that's do the basics or the complications of what this thing is, how it works. Mm -hmm. But um, most of them have not been there since yes. the beginning like me. And so uh, I do have a little bit of the history in my mind. Yeah. Also, the people who are involved are really important. Technology usually gets talked about by itself. 
but it, it, in my opinion, the people involved and their motivations are really important on appreciating mm. a technology. Okay. Like I've gotten to meet Vince Cerf, and I know he made TCPIP. And if you don't know who that person is, you just think of the internet as kind of a thing, mm. but it's really an idea from a guy for a reason. Yeah. And I, I like to know the people involved, and I'm privileged to know almost all the people who were involved in Bitcoin, which there's stories and people-centric things. It's not just code, you know? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I have a question for you that will uh, be kind of the critical mass of our time today. Sure. Okay, I'm a scientist, and I'm really into... Uh, mushroom spores because I really want to pursue the non-recreational space of mushrooms. Yeah. Where do I go to get spores to solve a particular problem that I want to solve? That's one half of the question. The other part of the question is, I'm a person that likes to be out and see the animals and smell the earth and, and see the sunrises and sunsets. And I like to dig around and, and, Fungi interests me. Yeah. And I know where certain species of fungi, mushrooms, whatever, live. But I want to harvest and I want to collect all these things because I want to sit back and say, yeah, I was responsible for finding in this particular region of the world. Is there anything I could do, I could create to help out the guys that want to go out in the dirt? And then the white coats that want to stay nice, squeaky clean, and just deal with putri dishes. Is there, what do I do? That is exactly what my company is working on. What's your company called? Mycosoft. Mycosoft. M-Y-C-O-S-O-F-T. And we'll put the website URL in this podcast. Mycosoft.org. So what uh, I focused on now is those exact tools that connect the forest to the lab so like you say if you're wandering the woods and you find something you see some magical colorful mushroom um, you don't know necessarily what it is unless you're a good identifier and an expert you've seen it before or you have one of your little field books that says maybe this is what it is the problem is you grab that thing um, you don't really have a place to put it so you could take it and consume it yourself if it's food. You say thing. You grab that thing. The, mush you, the mushroom. The actual mushroom itself. Yeah, and, okay. and, you know, there's a wide range of fungus. There are things that doesn't look like a capped mushroom that looks like slime on, on a log or looks like very little um, stringy, clear white mesh a mycelium that's growing out of the ground you may not be able to identify that if it's not a colorful mushroom cap all of that stuff is fungus the problem is no matter what if you take that sample out of the woods unless you have a relationship with laboratories or pharmaceutical companies you have no idea where to take it and give it and record it or save it now there are amateur mycologists people who are just into this themselves who will take it home put it in a petri dish, let it grow a couple weeks, and then basically clone that mushroom, put it on some sawdust and a, a sterile sawdust bag of wood. Mushroom will eat the wood and grow into new mushrooms. Mm. So people are, are growing at home mushrooms in a way that, well, I found this in the woods, I'm gonna grow it at home. There's a very simple way to do that. It, the problem is you have to go find that species to grow that species. Now there's about 20 
mushrooms on earth that a lot of people grow at home and they're mostly the food mushrooms that people want to sell at farmers markets or a couple grocery stores may sell these mushrooms they include things like lion's mane or question question um so in essence you put a sensor in the ground and it would pull up data it would identify well one of one of the things that we're doing is we're building a device to leave in the forest to monitor when mushrooms are growing and how they're growing and if they're growing healthy or not uh, another does it does it get inserted in the earth, the earth or you just lay it yeah, on top no okay. you definitely put it in the ground in the ground there's 300 miles of fungus filaments called mycelium for every square foot of soil in the woods there's a picture of this device on your website right yeah yeah so and, so, and I'll get a picture and I'll have it attached so, easily. So one of those core products that we're trying to do is put a sensing device out in the woods to be left alone for a long period of time to basically connect the forest. Do you have a name for this sensing device? Uh, we call it the Mycotenna. Mycotenna, like antenna, Pretty but Mycotenna. Much. Yeah, okay. it plugs into the ground and broadcasts the, the biological signals over the internet. Okay. Uh, so that there's a sensor out there monitoring the life cycle of the forest. Do you have any competitors, anybody doing this? That you know, Not necessarily. Okay. It's, it's more of a scientific research device so that there's not really too much commercial. So if I'm an investor, if I'm an investor, because I saw you at a pitch night. Yeah. Wabat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What three important problems does your sensor, your micro antenna? Yeah solve and how do I understand this is not anything to do with psilocybin and the goofy drug use of marijuana yeah. or uh, mushrooms? So mushrooms are either they get you high, they kill you, or they're food to most people. Those are the three subjects. Uh, at Microsoft, we believe there's a fourth subject, mm -hmm. the industrial use. Industrial use. Of, okay. of fungi. Now, most I'm going to put that in. Yeah. Okay. Non-recreational world-changing industrial use of yes. mushrooms so we yes. got those three elements there that should keep and at least me not thinking about funny colors and yeah. goofiness and so i'll explain it very simply like a, a fungus can be used as a material mm -hmm. so you can grow fungus as a replacement for concrete for rubber for clothing like textile just like hemp it could be made into hats and and shoes and blankets you could also harden it into like blocks, like concrete, or you can also make it pliable like rubber. So material growing out of fungus where it's biodegradable if you want it to be, mm -hmm. or it's long lasting if you want it to be, depending on how you cook it. Uh, it's, it's literally a, a recyclable back into the soil replacement for plastic, for styrofoam, for rubber, for concrete. Mm -hmm. It's a, a environmentally friendly material. That's one industrial use of fungus. Another use is all plants on earth have roots. Roots do not eat rock out of the ground, out of the soil. Mm. It's the fungus that eats the rock, the nitrogen and the calcium out of the rock and feeds that to a root. The root then exchanges sugar from the chlorophyll, from the, the photosynthesis. Mm. The plant gives sugars to the fungus and the fungus gives minerals out of the rocks to the root. So there's a thing called mycorrhizal where a fungus and a root are sharing nutrients. So plants would not be alive anywhere on earth unless fungus were eating the rock, giving them nutrients. Mm -hmm. And in exchange, the fungus gets something out of the plants because mm -hmm. the fungus don't have chlorophyll. They don't make their own sugars. So all fertilizers, all soil, 
all nutritional elements for plants and farming are based on fungus. You have to put fungus in your soils, in your fertilizers to make plants efficient. That's just the basics of fertilizer. So an industrial use of mushrooms Quick would question, also be so can, food for plants. So I can understand that. So does that mean the fungus would eliminate the bad and turn that digestive process of eating, for lack of better words, the bad, and then producing the nourishment for the real Pretty much. plants or whatever you're trying it's to It's a balance. Grow. So okay. like nitrogen is a very important fertilizer for plants. They need it. If there's too much nitrogen, plants will die. If there's no nitrogen, they don't have food. So no matter the amount of nitrogen in rock in the soil, a fungus will eat all of it distribute the right amount to the plant in a way that it's not going to hurt the plant like it's actually the regulator of this mm. so if there's not enough it'll put out more than it than it's normally going to do if there's too much it will regulate it and hold it back it actually works with plants in a symbiotic way that's where the word symbiote comes from yeah. is is really fungus working with plants so that's one related to materials and fertilizer. Mm -hmm. I think the more important industrial use of mushrooms, which hasn't really been done to this day, mm -hmm. we have mushrooms and fungi making medicines. That's, you could call that an industrial use. Mm -hmm. But mining, pulling metals and oil and plastic out of the ground is one of the most efficient things a mushroom can do or a fungus can do. Mm -hmm. It can literally bioaccumulate lithium, gold, silver, lead out of the ground into its fruiting bodies, into the mushrooms, and clean the ground, the soil, out of metal. It can also eat plastics, heavy plastics, and oil, which nothing on earth other than fungus and maybe a few bacterium can make plastic like go away. So it would eat plastic, digest it into hydrocarbons, into sugar, a better version of a hydrocarbon than oil or gas is a sugar, and then you could eat the mushroom or plants or animals could eat the mushroom where you can't eat the plastic. It would get you sick and poison you. Mm. The mushroom will convert plastic into edible sugars. Uh -huh. So as a recycler of the pollution and the dirty things on earth, whether it's heavy metals or oils, petroleum products, mushrooms can mine lithium out of a dead lithium mine that people have abandoned because it's too oh, inefficient. Okay. You just put oyster mushrooms on that lithium mine, they will pull all the lithium and gold and silver and lead out of the ground, and then you could basically pull, pull the metal out of the mushrooms in an efficient way. Would that be like an application to solve what people don't know how to solve is all the raw elements that we're making these Tesla batteries from? Lithium, and when they time. become non-rechargeable and they yeah. got to go back into the Argentine and earth that yes. we got it from. We could literally feed those to oyster mushrooms and bioaccumulate the lithium Why out. Why is that word not out? I mean, um God, there's a I lot know. of white papers from research on bioaccumulation, bioaccumulation. Of metal. Okay. But what I'm saying uh, and maybe my company's not the first, but it's one of the first trying to do the technological advancement of how can we use that? Mm -hmm. And so um, using an oyster mushroom as almost a mining tool is what we're trying to package the data and the actual spore that element as a huge. product, a, like a biological machine. If we have this mushroom, we, we need a container 
that we can take it to a mine. We need a way to distribute it in the mine healthily that's not gonna damage the rest of the environment. And we also need a way to accumulate all those mushrooms that are full of metal afterwards. So there's technology that needs to be made to use an oyster mushroom as a machine, a biological machine, whether that's it's containers distributing it, gathering it, and then we pull the metal out of what we do at the end, and now we're a healthy, efficient mine when mining with machines and chemicals was not efficient and safe. Question, question. So this is in regards to the balance you said that the mushroom figures out. Yes. Now, we figured out in science labs how to produce the flavor of strawberry or chocolate yep. or whatever. Do you think, or can human beings right now produce that balance in the lab? Can, or is it always gonna be left up to the mushrooms? Okay, so uh, on a philosophical- Real quick, view, was that a yes or no? No, no. Not, we're not there yet. Not, no, not now. No, because we do not field test fungus and mushrooms like we do in the lab, because we don't have the equipment to test mushrooms out in the field oh like in a their environment type thing or a petri dish so we take a mushroom out of the forest and we put it in a petri dish in a clean room we watch it grow mm -hmm. it is not growing the same way it would grow in the uh, ground with bacterium uh, and plants and insects it it is technically mm -hmm. mutated and doing something and erosion different. and weather it yeah, needs yeah. that environmental stimulus mm -hmm. to grow in its uh, real efficient uh, way where we learn the organism for real mm -hmm. so like an equivalent we can see how a deer acts in the forest. If you put a deer in the, in the zoo, it's gonna act a little differently, yeah, especially yeah. if it's by itself, right? Same with the tiger and a bear. You put them in the zoo, you make yeah. a fake environment, they, they're not gonna act the same. They'll, mm -hmm. they'll play with balls and the seals will honk horns. They don't do that in nature. They do different things. Same yeah. with dolphins and all of that. So imagine a mushroom in a zoo, in a lab. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's not acting the way it would naturally. Yeah. And actually you're cutting its efficiency and all of the magical things that it is doing in nature that you aren't even aware of mm. you're not observing those now so what we want to do is is national geographic we want to take the cameras and the petri dishes and the dna sequencers and the sensors out yeah. into the woods mm -hmm. so we could observe it in its environment excellent okay. so that's an important element that once that's done more industrial uses will be discovered more ways of using mushrooms for mining, for material making, for medicine making will be discovered. And then the samples of those mushrooms that we need to do those things will now be put in a spore bank in a library, which at this time, there is no place to get those spores. Mm. You have to go to your farmer's market or you have to find someone online who maybe has that mushroom. Or you mentioned like some nerd in his garage. Yeah, yeah. and so it's like, um, to, to be the equivalent, uh, before cannabis was legal in the United States, there was a guy that always had seeds somewhere and you had to know him. Mm -hmm. Now you can go buy seeds on an industrial scale, yeah. just like you could wheat and corn and rice, mm -hmm. um, spores, fungus, they're not in a database yet and they're not in a spore lab like a seed bank. So you, we don't have all of them in one Home Depot of spores. Yeah, yeah. That's really the long-term goal of our company. Home Depot of spores. All that the materials, huge. all the tools in one spot. So are you providing a product or a service? Both. Both. Right okay. now we have three devices we've built. And is the product and the service both named the same thing? No, um, um, we're, we're trying to do a full suite. So mm -hmm. we have the sensor, the Mycotena, that is the, the eyeballs and the ears in the woods. It's okay. learning. 
We also have a device called Spore Base, which is a spore collecting device that collects spores on a tape cassette. And we put that in the air on a tree, in a building, in front of a school, anywhere, mm -hmm. and it's collecting the spores out of the wind. Mm -hmm. So we could take those back and grow those, or we could identify dangerous fungus, or we can use those as a timestamp when that fungus was in the air. And our other device is a device that is literally smelling fungus with a robot nose called a volatile compound sensor. Okay. And it's basically alerting you on a computer hey, there's this fungus is here maybe, go, go dig for it, go look mm -hmm. for it. So we're trying to make the technology that you have the collector out there, the sensor out there, and also the, hey, alarm going off in your hand, on your phone, on your belt, the device that's smelling for mushrooms mm -hmm. and saying like a dog or a pig, hey, there's a mushroom here. So we're bringing the technology out to the field to discover, collect, and pay attention to fungus. Mm, okay. And right now those tools are not available to scientists, amateurs, professionals. It's, it's, you're, we're still using 1950s yeah. technology to find mushrooms. So do you have anything right now implanted in the earth somewhere around San Diego County? We have a couple of our yeah. mycotennas. We have three of them being tested. And in San Dimas, where we've manufactured our, our spore base up near LA, mm -hmm. we have yeah. seven of our spore Is prototypes. Is that near Bonelli Park? Yeah. Okay. And so we have se seven place. of the prototypes up there being tested right now because we've actually just applied for a U.S. Army grant for the spore base device because the military is very keen on wanting to know what's in the air. And so we're trying to market that device, particularly right now, to the Army to pay attention to what's happening in front of a base. Do you think there'd be a fire department application? Big time. Air analytics? Oh, it's, a, it's an aerosol detector. Yeah. So um, we focus on fungus, but mm -hmm. our device can collect fungus, pollen, virus, bacterium, chemical on a tape cassette. So imagine air quality management in front yeah. of a hospital, a school, a military base, a border, a park, um, a record of... Was the air bad this day? Was it good yeah. this day? And also, what was in the air? Attribution. Where we could mm. take the tape with the fungus spores or the virus on it, go put it in a Petri dish, grow it, and learn more about it. But we have an exact time stamp of when it was in the air. Okay. So that's a, a, a product that's going to help us pay attention, but also collect tissue out of the air. I thought I knew everything about what you do, and that you just created like 8,000 more questions, which and is going to set up another podcast. So now I got two podcast promises from you. I appreciate I, it. So does AI fit into this plan, and how? So... We use a particular sensor in our multiple devices. It's called a VOC, a Volatile Organic Compound Sensor. It's made by Bosch, the company that makes lots of things. Yeah. Okay, it's called a Bosch 688. The Bosch 688 is basically a robot nose that smells hydrogen, carbon, sulfur, nitrogen, different elements. Mm. And depending on the combination of those elements, that is either two-stroke, four-stroke, diesel, bear shit, deer shit, Mm -mm. A certain plant over yeah. a certain plant. There's a profile of smell that is measured in hydrogen, carbon, nitrogen, sulfur. Different elements can say that is that thing that I'm smelling. Mm -hmm. That is done through AI where it is training itself. Just like the neural networks in AI are doing the picture training on a dog is a dog or a cat picture is a cat picture. When you say cat, a cat mm, picture will yeah. show up because it did a lot of training. Yeah. So we are training out in the field all the smells of all the fungus all the plants, all the insects, all the fecal matter of every animal, mm. and we're training that in the Bosch platform 
where its neural network is going, oh, that's a two-stroke engine, a smell of fuel, or that's a four-stroke yeah. engine, or that's diesel. So it'll be sensitive to only mushrooms eventually, right? Well, we're gonna, they have those profiles for all the smells. Oh, okay. And what we are okay. contributing now to this $20 sensor, the Bosch 688, is they have no fungal data. So mm. what we're doing is we're training it on truffles, on oyster mushrooms, on lion's mane, and we're also putting it out in the field next to our spore collector. So when a spore is found, we now have the volatile compound sensor data of what it smelled when that spore was there too. So that is, to me, a pioneering thing that no one else is doing is using AI for smells. Mm -hmm. and, and we do a lot of eyes, cameras in, in AI, you know, pictures. Yeah. Google and Apple are good at that. We do a lot of sounds where AI is analyzing what music's playing in the room, you know, Shazam and things like that. Yeah. I think um, one of the untapped worlds is the nose yeah the smells mm -hmm. and if ai can learn the biological smells of the world as well as the sensors in the ground of what's happening we're going to have ai become very aware of the living things on earth mm. in the air in the ground and right now there's not too many companies plugging into the ground breathing the air well i certainly know a battlefield application because of chemical big time war cbre <laughs> we have pieces you know? of tape yes <laughs> Yes, I think I it's know. still that way. Well, um, you <laughs> like a bug strip. So you have you have military experience. I have some in my family, and we know we have the the chemical detectors, the 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 radiological detectors, yeah. like the Geiger counter, mm -hmm. NBC. Yeah, in, nuclear in, in, biological, chemical, chemical biological, radiological, yeah. all of it. Right. So the biological detector very inefficient. We would love to have something the size of your phone that's smelling the air mm. and collecting the air and saying, yeah. oh, here's a sample of what was in the air. At this time of day, you know, yes. a point in time. And it's also will save people's lives, but it also will say, hey, the air quality is not good outside. Maybe you shouldn't go outside right now. Um, we just saw New York go black from all the fires in, ca yeah. in Canada, right? So um, you don't need to look out the window to go, I shouldn't be outside breathing. But sometimes... You don't you know. gotta see if it's progressing, if it's dissipating, yes. or if it's getting thicker, right? And and so we we see lots of customer application uses of fungus mm. um, in the United States. Military money is always key. Uh, DoD money is is always there, mm -hmm. but the scientific community doesn't always have the most money. But we focus on building these tools for the the mycologist to be able to, to gather something from the woods mm. and give it to a lab a, a lab coat a pharmaceutical company because there's money for them if they can bring something from the forest to the lab the lab will pay for that also the mycologist wants to have the petri dish and the microscope the better tools and mm. we've not advanced the tools yeah. in almost 60 years so we're going to give a new suite of digital smartphone like tools to people gathering tissue out in nature, biological mm. scientists. And that's not just mycologists, that's uh, herbologists, insectarian people, anyone who wants to study plants, animals, insects, they need more tools to do it outside. Um, the lab wants to know what's going on out there. Mm. And a guy in a lab coat not necessarily wants to walk okay. out in the woods. There are so much, so many questions that myself, I'm sure the listeners have, but we've got three minutes left. Okay on this podcast you okay. promised me there's yeah, other ones I'll right do as many as you want so i want to learn what like a day in the life uh of you as a mycologist how do you get your information like 
what's interest what's important to you when you wake up like what you want to know about the world as it relates to um current events that type of thing okay so um we've got two minutes left i i am highly keen on intelligence i was raised in an intelligence household in that in military intelligence um, like secrets and what kind of yeah enemies are james bond stuff okay. is how yeah, i was raised yeah, you know good, good. so the first thing i do when i wake up is i i get up about five thirty six in the morning because i trade on the markets the first mm. news source i get is bloomberg and cnbc because they have stock tickers on the news. Okay. And no matter how many talking heads... Like what's in your office with pretty much, Bitcoin? Yeah, yeah. Okay. but everything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, you have people telling you the news all the time. Because we're three hours behind when it starts. Yes, yeah. so you have to be up at 5.36 in Pacific okay. Standard yeah. Time. But um, the people on CNBC and Bloomberg, where the stock tickers are, by law, they're fiduciaries because mm -hmm. they're showing money on the screen. So they can't lie to you. Uh, all the news in the world could be propaganda and just be entertainment and lie to you uh, and misinform and, and have their agenda. But the stock channels, by law, because of fiduciary rules, they can't misinform an investor. Mm. So the news from the, the financial news is more accurate than any other news. There still will be agendas in how they speak, yeah. but they can't blatantly lie. So that's the first source. And what business is collapsing this morning? What's the prices of gold and silver and Bitcoin and oil and the stock market? That's okay. a factual piece of information I get up in the morning. And it lets me gauge a lot of what's going on in the world. Also, if there's, you know, uh, destabilizing events in the world, whether it's weather or war or an earthquake or a company, the, the stock channels will tell the truth about that because it's going to affect money. So mm. that's good source of information. Okay. The, the second I would say is I have Google in my life, all the AI tools, Google mm. on my watch and my phone. And, yeah, and wearables. I have Google wake me up as my alarm, tells me to wash my hands, go eat breakfast, says the news is here. It will play CNBC and Bloomberg for two minutes each for me in the morning. Mm. And then it will tell me my calendar and say, you need to go do this and this and this. I have my, you know, like Iron Man assistant. It informs me. And um, depending on what news I see on the, the financial news, I'll ask it, can you please tell me about this? And it will go find that from sources okay. I've approved. Mm, yeah. So I would say when it comes sources to the world- Sources you've approved. Yeah, I've made a list of like, I don't like NPR, but I do that, like BBC. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? with it, yeah, yeah. Like, uh, C-SPAN, yeah. it's kind of neutral. Right? Yeah, yeah, very factual Congress recordings. Mm -hmm. So, um, but not someone telling you, you their opinion. think our listeners could get a list? Oh yeah, you just at Google Home, or if you use Alexa, the Amazon version, or mm -hmm. Apple, they have a way in your. But thing. you said you your reliable sources. Is it out there, or you just copy oh, someone else's? Oh no, list? they're just what I've chosen. Oh, like okay. I, that's I, what I'm saying. Could somebody get um, what your list is? Uh, I would say um, in the U.S., I only truck trust the stock channels, mm -hmm. CNBC and Bloomberg. But I do listen to Al Jazeera, Russian Times RT and BBC because I do like to know the foreign perspectives on yeah. things that are happening in the world and the US. And those British, Russian, and Saudi Arabia based news, I'm gonna get information there that I won't get from CNBC and Bloomberg because it, it okay. doesn't affect the money in that yeah. way. Yeah. Um, other than that, I like social collaborative news like Twitter, 
-hmm. I like uh, social collaborative news like TikTok because I've seen world events like disasters and things show up on TikTok within minutes that I've never seen on the news for days, mm -hmm. like protests and fires and earthquakes or train derailings. Yeah. I've seen that on TikTok within minutes when I've not seen it anywhere else. Earthquakes. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's a sourced from the people. Critical infrastructure, significant And events. the algorithm will put, if multiple people are putting a video or a picture of something like that out, yeah. I will see that. A lot, very fast. Okay, okay. So I trust the people more than an institution. Yeah. And the only institutions I trust are multiple sourcing. I wouldn't trust them individually. I would mm -hmm. trust them collectively. Yeah. So if CNBC and Bloomberg say different things and they're the stock companies, I take that as a, well, something's going on. They're not consistent. Yeah, yeah. But if I hear a same basic video or statement from a hundred people on TikTok and a thousand people on Twitter, I'm going to be pretty confident that that's really happening. Makes I like, sense. I like Good. crowdfunding, you know, yeah. crowdfunding the source and the info. So it's critical thinking. Yeah. Is what you, yeah. Okay. I, that definitely satisfies that answer. Now, my last question of this time. So on a scale from one to 10, 10 is you have everything you need, uh, for your sensors, and for the services you provide, yeah, what's that number where you're at right now? Probably three point five. Three point five, and so as succinctly as we can, pithy. Yeah. What are your three top needs right now? Um, funding is always important. And how much money? Uh, we just applied for two hundred thousand dollars. What? No. What do you need? Uh, if we get phase two, we're at two million. That would be what we two need. million dollars right now. If yes. I had two million dollars, I write you check. Okay, go ahead. And What's then the next need would be using that money to upgrade our facilities, which we're planning on doing if our grants go through, because we need a larger facility for storage collection and store and and, and that's the analysis. middle zone between yes. the two parties I yes. described at the yes. beginning of the podcast. Okay, we need a we have a lab now to so build two. things, but we need a bigger lab to build more things. Three million and then a facility, right? Give or take, yeah. Okay. And, and then number and, three? Um, basically uh, having a recruitment of proper people, HR, which is- Talent. A, yes. Okay. Well, that- They would want to come to a good facility that has money. So if I met you in an elevator- Yeah. And, oh, you're the guy on the podcast. I recognize you from yeah. the glasses and the beard. Yeah. Hey, a lot of stuff just happened to me. I'm blessed with- I got $3 million and I know a friend who's got a plot of land that he can't sell anybody. Yeah. And then I got my, my son goes to this uh, school that emphasizes on tech people. Yep. Can I help you out? Is that pretty much sum it up? Pretty much. You could in 30 seconds give that elevator pitch. Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, yeah for sure. Shake your hand yeah. and we'll, uh, we'll definitely talk again, okay? Yeah, yeah. I appreciate All right. it big time. This is Steve Hazlett with the Teams Podcast. We're so glad to have the rock star mycologist Morgan Rockwell. I don't know why I forget your last name. But I don't get that Norman Rockwell money. So. The Rockwell, yeah, the Rockwell. But you're a rock star. I try to be. Thank you very much. Until next time. Bye-bye.